Nobody Should Believe Me is a production of Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Before we begin, a quick warning that in this show we discuss child abuse and this content may be difficult for some listeners. If you or anyone you know is a victim or survivor of medical child abuse, please go to MunchausenSupport.com to connect with professionals who can help. People believe their eyes. That's something that actually is so central to this whole issue and to people that experience this, is that we do believe the people that we love when they're telling us something. If you questioned everything that everyone told you, you couldn't make it through your day. Today, I want to tell you about a seriously fun and hilarious memoir coming out this week from my dear friend Geraldine DeRoyter called If You Can't Take the Heat, Tales of Food, Feminism, and Fury. Geraldine is the James Beard award-winning blogger behind The Everywhereist, as well as the author of All Over the Place, Adventures in Travel, True Love, and Petty Theft, which is also fantastic. You may know of Geraldine from one of her several viral moments, including my favorite, her hilarious takedown of Mario Batali's deeply weird Me Too apology, where he included a recipe for cinnamon rolls that was, apparently, according to Geraldine, who bravely baked them, not even very good. Geraldine is one of the sharpest, funniest voices out there, and this book included so many wonderful and heartrending stories from her own life. Rabia Chowdhury, a fantastic true crime podcaster and the author of another one of my favorite food memoirs, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, said about this book, Witty does not begin to describe the razor-sharp takes Deroyter packs into chapter after chapter of this hilarious, astute, and at times heartbreaking memoir. I got an early copy of this and hard agree, Rabia. You can get your hands on, if you can't take the heat, wherever books are sold starting Tuesday, March 12th. And if you're an audiobook lover, you are in luck because Geraldine reads it herself, which I love. You can find out more at Geraldine's website, everywhereist.com. I had developed a really good relationship with the Butcher family at this point, but I just really wanted to hear from Hope. I really wanted to sit down with her and hear what her experience about what her experience of this had been like because that was still the biggest mystery. So I got her number from her father, Paul, and I sent her a text message asking her if she'd be willing to talk to me, and she told me she would think about it. When I came across Hope Yabara's case, it really stuck out to me and resonated with me because of some of those similarities that we've been talking about with my own family story. But it was far from the only case in Tarrant County, Texas, that was in the media at the time. The cases of people like Cecilia Ransbottom, Kristen Shreve, and Elizabeth Honeycutt were also making headlines at that time. And I started to wonder, what's going on here? The cases are out there. I'm not trying to say that they're common, but they're out there. But so many of them just go undetected and unreported. I'm Deanna Boyd, a former investigative reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. What I found out about Tarrant County, but I don't think this happens in a lot of counties or a lot of states, it's all about the investigation. 
Tarrant County seems to do it right. They don't do it alone. They get CPS involved. They get Cook Children's Medical Center involved. There, there is a team of people who were involved in this investigation and going through medical records and going through social media records. And these are long, drawn-out investigations. From my research, it was most law enforcements aren't going to dedicate the time. Most law enforcement officers and CPS don't even have the training in these kind of investigations. Here again is Detective Mike Weber. He echoes Tiana Boyd's thoughts on why there are so many cases in Tarrant County. How come we have so many? That's easy. The criminal part is me, right? Because no one else can do that. But we have, we have a system set up to, to catch these offenders. Our pediatricians at Cook's Children's feel comfortable reporting this abuse. I mean, that's a real issue for physicians. There are physicians that have been followed home There are physicians that have been harassed. There are physicians that have been sued by these offenders. For physicians to feel comfortable reporting, knowing that something is going to be done is important. For them to be educated on what this is, is important. Me and Dr. Kaufman have done two grand rounds at Cook's Children's Hospitals to make sure that the physicians there have an understanding of this and know and will feel comfortable reporting this abuse. And it also goes to the hospital legal staff. Are they, are they going to be more concerned about self-protection? Because it'd be real easy to ignore this and never have to deal with the headache and just let the child suffer. Or are they going to do the right thing and be supportive of their doctors whenever they do report this abuse? Which Cook's Children's has been. And I can tell you 100% that all children's hospitals have not been. The more I got into these cases, the more I realized what a huge lift this was for hospitals and doctors to investigate these cases. And I wondered how cooks seem to be accomplishing this. For hospitals, between HIPAA and their various liabilities and their, you know, bills to pay and whatever else their staff has to do, you know, it's just a lot of work to try and get everything that you need together to move forward with one of these investigations. I got a chance to meet with Dr. Jamie Kaufman. She's the child abuse pediatrician at Cook Children's Hospital, and she frequently does trainings with Detective Mike Weber. Dr. Kaufman told me about their care team at the hospital, which she is the head of. So the care team is actually our child abuse program for our medical system. So we have an outpatient clinic, and uh, we have a pretty big staff that's full-time, which we're very fortunate for that. We don't have to do any general pediatrics or any other uh, types of clinics. So there's myself. I'm a board-certified child abuse pediatrician. We also have advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners in our case, as well as sexual assault nurse examiners. And so we all work full-time in this clinic, along with social workers as well. We see children concerns of any type of abuse. So it can be sexual abuse, severe neglect, physical abuse, medical child abuse, um, whatever the issue is. But we also do inpatient consults in the hospital. We have a lot of experience uh, with dealing with the different types of abuse, but also dealing with the system. So whether it's the criminal system or the civil court system. Does every children's hospital have some version of this? They all look very different. There's a huge variety on um, staffing. And in a lot of children's hospitals, the uh, child abuse pediatrician may have to do other types of pediatric work as well, and not just child abuse pediatrics. So they may be doing some general pediatrics. They may be doing some emergency medicine. Um, So it, it varies. 
What occurs to me listening to Dr. Kaufman talk about these discrepancies in care at various children's hospitals is just that I can't imagine that you could ever catch one of these cases without dedicated staff because the number of pages of medical records that you have to review in order to detect this abuse, you know, that's what it comes down to. It comes down to the records. The hallmark of these cases is that the parent is taking their child to the hospital all the time, to different hospitals in different counties with different systems. And they're creating this immense paper trail that could completely overwhelm the staff of, of any hospital. And so it's it's hard to imagine that without some kind of really direct focus, you know, of the staff to be able to, to do that medical record review. I mean, that's what it comes down to in these cases. Dr. Kaufman talked to me about the importance of everyone involved in these cases talking to each other and how much trust plays a huge role. Our system really fosters a collegiality amongst staff because we have relationships. And I think that's what everything basically comes down to is relationship between providers, between departments. There, I've worked at a lot of different places. And I have to say, I have the cell phone numbers for a lot of people um, that I can call for different specialists or investigators or whatever, um, that if I want an opinion or I need help, they're a phone call away. Um, they're an email away. They're an instant message away. And they respond, right? It's not like I'm going to send an email to an orthopedic surgeon with a question about an x-ray and he's not going to get back to me or she's not going to get back to me. They get back very quickly, right? And so we have that relationship and expectations that's fostered by everybody. I'd become really familiar with Dr. Kaufman's work uh, via Mike Weber. I came to find out that she wasn't the only one who has been working really hard to make this system work to protect kids. Here's Dr. Karen Schultz. She is a pediatric pulmonologist at Cook Children's. Cook is a unique place. Our main focus is taking care of patients, not education for students and residents. So if I have a concern about my patient, I pick up the phone and I call directly to the attending physician and we don't have layers of students and residents that everything gets filtered through. There's a lot more direct communication. So despite all of the strong working relationships amongst the various colleagues at Cook Children's Hospital, investigating these cases of medical child abuse is still anything but easy, even with a dedicated child abuse detection team. At the same time, it really seemed to me like Cooks is doing something right here. And I wondered if we just couldn't replicate this model all around the country. Well, it is a complicated issue. Um, it's uh, complicated for medical professionals, much less lay people. Even when you're well-informed, these are such entangled, complicated medical kinds of situations that I think even for medical professionals, it's oftentimes hard to disentangle fact and fiction, right? Because the perpetrators are so manipulative and have enough knowledge base that they're really good at putting enough truth with the fiction that it gets very difficult to differentiate sometimes. When there is a suspicion of medical child abuse specifically, what does the record review process 
for that look like? You can't make a diagnosis of medical child abuse without uh, reviewing all medical records. And that's not just from your own institution, because many of these perpetrators uh, doctor shop and hospital shop. And um, we've had um, children that not only use different physicians within our town, uh, but also travel among different cities and among different states uh, to get that medical care that they're trying to seek. So it's important to review all those records because that's where you find the discrepancies between what um, the caregiver is saying versus what is actually documented in the record. And so when you start seeing those discrepancies where they're saying, oh, this child had a brain bleed, for example, and then you review the records and they're saying the brain bleed was found on this hospitalization, you review that and you're finding, oh, there was a normal head CT scan. There was no brain bleed. Um, so there you find that's a falsified report of a medical condition that isn't true. And so you're looking for those kind of discrepancies in the record. And then once you start looking for that, um, then you let the medical providers know, well, this is a discrepancy that this isn't really the truth because these diagnoses get perpetuated in the medical record. So if a mom says that or a father or whoever the perpetrator is, it gets put down as one of their diagnoses. And then that just gets repeated throughout the medical record and it's not true to begin with. And there's difficulties in reviewing medical records outside of your own institution because unless a, a legal guardian gives you consent, you can't see those records. And so, th number one, they have to be truthful to tell you they went somewhere else, which if they don't tell you, you don't know to look. And two, they have to give you permission to look. So if you don't have those two things, you're not going to even know the care that's done elsewhere. And to review these records is usually thousands of pages of medical records because you can't just review the doctor's notes, right? There is so much within the nursing notes, uh, telephone calls. All those things have to be reviewed. It's every single notation. And it can take well over 100 hours to do all that. And of course, insurance doesn't reimburse for any of that time. So how do you do it, right? How do you have time to do it? How do you fund something to where people can review those records and then find out, is this just an anxious parent who comes to medical care for every sniffle, right? Which that happens, especially new moms and things. You don't know what's normal, what's not normal. Um, and Obviously, there are anxious parents out there. There are children with truly complex medical problems um, that are getting appropriate care. And then there are situations where a caregiver is lying or inducing illness. And in all that quagmire of information, you have to figure that out. Do you think that it's as rare as most people believe? No. When I first started in this role 21 years ago, we looked at maybe one or two cases a year as being Munchausen by proxy or medical child abuse. And over the years, when we've really kind of developed better system for looking and not being siloed, right? That's one of the problems of siloed medical care. So once we started looking at getting out of those silos and really looking and, and having a system for other medical providers to speak out and notify that there may be an issue, um, we started looking at 30 or 40 cases a year. And out of those cases, there's some that aren't, that are truly a 
true medical condition or an anxious parent. But out of those, you know, we'd have 20 that CPS validated. Now, where they got removed was a whole other thing. But, but that CPS did validate and substantiate as being abuse. Technology also plays an increasingly important role in these cases. How many of those were abused and didn't get validated? That is another thing that we can't really know for sure. And I think the number's growing as we have a computer in our pocket to Google everything and to look for symptoms um, that you can falsify. Um, So I, I think it's going to get worse, not better. And also as our society um, is all about social media and how many likes you have and how many people watched whatever, um, you know, I think that kind of feeds into it as well, um, that attention seeking. And so I think it's going to get worse, not better. I really want to make sure that this moment in Dr. Kaufman's interview lands because I think this is really genuinely a terrifying thought. We know that this abuse is underreported to begin with. It's incredibly difficult and time-consuming to investigate. And the way that this collides with the attention economy of social media, it means that it's primed to get worse. And this is the access to the drug that people who have this disorder are looking for has increased so many times over as social media's permeated our society. And so I think looking at this intersection and really absorbing what Dr. Kaufman's saying here is really important. The reality is modern tools make this crime much easier to commit. After all, we know that this is a crime of opportunity. Here's Dr. Mark Feldman, a psychiatrist and one of the world's leading authorities on Munchausen by proxy. Years ago, before the advent of social media, people who wanted to falsify illness had to trudge to medical libraries, find medical textbooks, decide what ailment they were going to depict, bring their child to the emergency room or doctor's office or hospital, or go there themselves and do a fair amount of acting to convince the doctors that there really was a severe problem when in fact there was none at all. That's time intensive and laborious. But now you can become an expert in a medical illness or a mental illness in about 20 minutes by reading Wikipedia. And you don't need to go to the medical libraries. Similarly, you can just click to a support group devoted to illnesses of various types. And they exist to be unquestionably supportive. And perpetrators count on that. Uh, So they'll go online and say either that they're sickly or that the child has cystic fibrosis or asthma or some other dread condition. And there's no verifying it, really. That makes it hard, obviously, to dispute it, on the other hand. And they get all sorts of attention and feel a sense of control over other people by having manufactured all of this online. What would you say to people who say, this isn't a real thing? Fortunately, it's getting a little bit more common for people to acknowledge that it exists, but we get into conflict over how common it is. One of the biggest myths is that Munchausen by proxy is extremely rare. And I counter that it's not rare, it's just we're failing to recognize it. 
that if doctors and health professionals and the public were better informed about Munchausen by proxy, we might see an explosion of cases, not because people are suddenly abusing their children, but because we're now recognizing the risk factors for cases. So again, it's not true that it's very rare. It's also not true that people who engage in Munchausen by proxy abuse, the perpetrators are, quote, crazy. If they were, if they were flagrantly psychotic, we would be able to tell right away that they're not credibly reporting on the child's symptoms. The fact is that even in court, they present as utterly normal people, loving parents for whom this kind of behavior would be totally alien. So we can't tell from just chatting with an alleged perpetrator whether or not she is in fact a perpetrator based on the apparent normality of her responses to questions. I think also another myth is that Munchausen by proxy is about financial gain. So that if somebody is not getting disability support or opioid medications as a result of what they're doing to their children, it can't really be uh, Munchausen by proxy. That's a complete misunderstanding. We call that malingering by proxy and it, or just plain malingering. The aim there is to acquire attention, sympathy, and concern. They want intangible satisfaction and they get very deceptive in order to obtain it. That's what Munchausen by proxy is all about. Yeah, I really like that point you made about them not seeming crazy because I think that that is one of the things that has persisted a bit in some of the media around it. And I'm thinking actually more of the dramatizations where in some ways those perpetrators come across as so obviously creepy that it does run the risk of making it seem like this is something that anybody would be able to spot. And that, you know, these women are so, so odd and so sort of either have, you know, this really heavy sort of Southern Gothic creepiness or, you know, or seem sort of deranged, um, when in fact, that's not usually the case. And that's actually what enables them to pull this off. That's precisely the case. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And much as a by proxy is an inherently dramatic phenomenon. And I don't think programs need to go and sensationalize it further. When you find out the facts of a case, your jaw drops. So why elaborate all sorts of turns and spins to something that's so disquieting to begin with? But it's done for dramatic effect in many of the programs that have recently appeared in which Munchausen by proxy is either the central plot or a subplot. You know, it's a word that comes up all the time when you're reading about these cases in the news or, you know, reading about sort of the, the coverage of, of it in the media in any way is the word monster. And even in one of Hope Yabara's interviews that she did from prison, she described herself as a, as a monster. And I understand that because the behavior is monstrous. I think that it's something that as a behavior, it's the worst thing that most people can possibly imagine is a mother who would torture her child in this way for the purposes of attention. And yet I think that people have a desire to distance themselves from it by saying that person's a monster, that person's crazy. And in that way, it allows them to push it away and say, this would never happen in my family. 
if it did happen in my family, I would be the person who knew right away. I would not be the person who got conned for 10 years. I don't think that that reflects reality at all. Actually, people who are good and loving get pulled into these these stories. And, and I think that in many ways to characterize these women as somehow this really scary other is a disservice because in reality, I think it is the mom next door. It is your sister, your auntie, your friend. It could be in your family. It could be in any family. Against all odds, Tarrant County is still catching and prosecuting more of these cases than anywhere else in the country. Again, here's Detective Mike Weber. After the first case that I worked on, I went to my chief prosecutor, Atlanta Minton, I told her, I'm like, you know, I'd seen what it took to work these cases, the volume of the amount of work. And I told Atlanta, you know, detective with 30 cases on his caseload is going to have a hard time working these. Why don't you just give any more of these that come in to me? Yabara came in two months later, and that was in April of 2009 when we got the Yabara case. And from that point to, until 2015, I investigated 16 reports of this abuse, and we filed six criminal cases. We got five guilty pleas to child abuse crimes and one guilty plea to uh, Medicaid fraud. So Mike has a really impressive track record, and he's considered the top expert in the country on law enforcement in medical child abuse cases. But the road in Mike's career has not always been easy for him. Um, I went to the sheriff's office in 2018. And how many more have you worked on since that time? Since January of 2019, uh, I've investigated, gosh, 12 more of these cases, and we filed criminal charges on six. That's a lot of cases for something that's just exceptionally rare, allegedly. So um, right. is there something in the water in Tarrant County? or We're investigating crimes. The issue with this is police aren't trained on what this is. They don't know what it is. They tend to dismiss it as a CPS issue, and the child continues to be unprotected. We have learned in Tarrant County, we have a quasi-system. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But we have a system in place that allows us to address these these offenses, and we're working to make that system better every day. So what you're saying is you've got kind of a, a working ecosystem in Tarrant County around this. So what does that look like? You know, the first thing in, in, in a good ecosystem is having education, and that starts with the doctors at Cook's Children's. And, you know, this can be very dicey for doctors if they report it and nothing is done. These offenders are extremely litigious. They can dive nine. I know doctors who have lost professional privileges because of accusations made by these offenders. Um, you know, there's a very big case in Boston, the Pelletier case, where they sued the hospital for falsely accusing the mom. Our doctors at Cook's Children's know that this is going to be addressed properly. Anyone, right, with anything, when they know that the right thing is going to be done, they're more likely to report things, which is what we found at Cook's Children's. And, you know, not, doctors are humans. That's another big fallacy here that people don't understand. There are cases where uh, reports are made that aren't true, but we have a system that shows that they're not true. Police investigations do not just convict the guilty. They also clear the innocent. And without that police investigation, there are certain things we can do that CPS cannot do. And without that police investigation, you do not get a full picture of the behavior of the alleged offender. There is a pretty visceral fear as a parent of 
having some run-in with the system where you are falsely suspected of abusing your child. So I think it's good to point out that actually the behavior of a loving parent, of a parent who's taking good care of their kid, does not look like the behavior of a parent who's being medically abusive. You know, a lot of the perpetrators that we know about, where we know back into their history as teenagers, they started these behaviors in teenagers. You know, Hope's family told us about she suddenly fell out of bed and was in a wheelchair in her marching band, and the marching band was pushing her out in a wheelchair. You know, there's things in um, in my own family's history that go back to being a teenager that we look back now and are just, oh, my God, I can't believe we didn't realize this was going on. It, you know, we were talking about early, like catching these things early, being a preventative measure— Ideally, catching the person when they're doing it to themselves and getting them psychiatric help when they're not victimizing anyone else, that's the ideal time to catch the behavior, right? right? So this is, like, really important on a couple of levels. Right. It's what parents worry about. So if you have police involvement early, it can stop that. You okay? Oh, man. It just sneaks up on me sometimes. I think it's because— My sister was around the same age when she started doing some really obvious, you know, falsifying. And, uh, yeah, there was this incident in um, when she was, I think, 16 or 17 when she told everyone at school that she was losing her hair and she had a bald patch. And my mom took her to the dermatologist and the dermatologist pulled my mom aside and said, your daughter's shaving her head. I'm just like, why didn't this dermatologist say she needs psychiatric help? It's like, right. you know, like, and I think my mom tried to get her to go to counseling, but once you have a 17-year-old and you're not in a situation where it's as serious as you have a police officer there and they can send you to the psych ward, it's so hard to look back at that situation and think, oh, my God, if we had known. And I know that that's just something that, like, so stuck with my parents. I know it's not that they didn't do the right thing. I just think that it's like nobody said this could be Munchausen, this could be factious disorder, this could be this psychiatric condition where this is the reason she's doing it. It just seemed like a baffling teenage thing that no one could make sense of. And then it escalated and escalated, and here we are now, you know? It's just— I mean, something that you need to understand, and your parents especially to understand, is even if you had sought psychiatric help, and you know this, there's every chance that it would have been ineffective. I mean, whoever you would have sought it from probably wouldn't have known how to apply the proper psychiatric help. My name is Karen Schultz, and I am a physician at Cook Children's Medical Center. Starting out, it just, all of these are just normal kind of cases that a patient comes to you with a problem, you try to help the problem. But as you dive into them and you start having second doubts of yourself, is this really right? Am I really doing what's in the best interest of the child? Because that's my job is to do what's in the best interest for the child, not for the parent, for the child. It really makes you doubt where you're going and makes you not sleep at night. If you could talk a little bit about how you get to a diagnosis, like whether that's mostly tests, that you can sort of see on the screen, or is it mostly based off of patient history as a specialist? So it kind of depends on the age of the patient and the problem, depending on where you can come from. There tends to be less tests you can do on smaller children a lot of the time than you can on some of our older children. And for our younger children, you really depend on the history from the parent or the caregiver 
because they can't tell you, my head hurts, my stomach hurts, whatever else hurts. You depend on the parent to tell you the truth about what is happening to their child so you can make the best decisions on, is there a test I can do? Is there a medicine I can give? Is there something else that I need to do? And what sorts of things would make you suspicious that a parent wasn't being honest? It's usually when things don't quite add up. They tell you about symptoms and you're like, oh, that is clearly looks like this and your treatment plan doesn't work whatsoever. And you try a different treatment plan that again should work and it doesn't work at all. And you just know that there's something there that isn't quite right. I mean, you just, you just don't feel that it's right. Are there any patterns that you've seen emerging that have helped you develop a way of looking out for red flags? I think the biggest one that I pay attention to right off the bat is um, whether they've doctor shopped. So if they don't get their answer at one physician, then they go somewhere else and then they end up at me because they there's something they're looking for. A lot of people, if they had the feeling that something was wrong with their child and felt like the doctor they took them to wasn't being responsive to their concerns, it would be pretty natural to go and seek a second opinion. So how do you differentiate this kind of doctor shopping that you're talking about from a parent's more natural inclination to follow their instincts about their child's health? I mean, as a parent, if I had any doubt about what the physician was telling me and I would go find someone else to ask the same question to. I think the big part is they've had multiple normal tests or multiple appropriate therapies that families report don't help. And then they're switching and wanting all of the same evaluation repeated. Obviously, some things are medically complex. Like, what sort of distinguishes that? Like, what does that look like? So we can kind of contrast it with what you just described. You can verbally review the test results with the family and say, okay, these are all the things that I know are normal. And the families who are really looking for a second opinion will go, okay, so what do we do now? Um, And a lot of my medical child abuse families will say, yeah, but I don't really believe that. They are clearly looking for a yes, rather than we've ruled out X, Y, and Z, so now what comes after that? The assumption would be that someone would go to something that was really rare and sort of hard to test for, et cetera. But you're saying that some of these things that parents are bringing their kids in where it does turn out to be an abusive situation are pretty common things. It's just that they're the child response is not what you would expect? Yes. Ones that are easy for families to tell you about and hard for doctors to prove they're lying. One of the most common just in general for medical child abuse is failure to thrive. The family comes in and you go through a whole plan of how you're going to feed this child, how you're going to get the child to gain weight, what you're going to do. You can bring them into the hospital. You can document them gaining weight in the hospital, and they go home, and they lose weight again. And you bring them back into the hospital, and they gain weight, and they go home, and they lose weight again. And so 
that's really documenting that I can make this child gain weight when they're there. I am trusting that the family is doing the same thing at home, but clearly they are not, is the conclusion you come to eventually. Our training is a patient comes to you, you figure out the problem, you treat them, everybody moves on. I mean, there's some chronic illnesses that that have lifelong implications, but for the most part, that's your goal is to get the patient better. And then when they're not getting better, and then you're doubting yourself in my, is there some medical diagnosis I'm truly missing? And then to make the leap of, is this caregiver not being truthful and that's why they're not getting better versus I missed something from a medical standpoint. And when you get to the point where you're thinking, is this really really more on the medical child abuse side, then you keep going back saying, oh, but if I miss something, then I'm gonna feel even worse because I missed something rather than thinking that a parent is not being truthful to me. That sounds like a scary place to be as a professional. I mean, this is a lot of responsibility that we give to pediatric medical professionals in particular to put someone in that position where none of the outcomes are are good, right? You're worried you missed something or this parent is, is doing this to their child on purpose. Do you think that some physicians are just not even able to make that leap to the possibility of child abuse? It's a hard leap to to make, especially that first time or two when you haven't been exposed to it as much. And I think it's why a lot of these cases, the children undergo multiple procedures is because the physician's going, oh, but what if I did miss something? And so you're really then just playing into the caregiver's wants and desires to have the focus put back onto the child and the caregiver. Once you suspect that this may be a case of medical child abuse as a doctor, what happens next? Generally, I try to document well that the steps that we have gone through to get to that point, then I generally call CPS. And they're my first line to get more investigation done. It's become really clear to me how, in order to protect children from this form of abuse, every part of the system needs to be working well and working in concert from the doctors to CPS to law enforcement to family court and criminal court. And in some ways, this makes me feel a little hopeless because the idea that all of those systems would work together in this seamless way almost seems like an impossible bar to reach. And yet the fact that these systems are working, this ecosystem clearly is developing in this one place in Tarrant County, Texas, where they're developing something of a model for what a successful system that does protect children from this abuse and that does catch these perpetrators when they're hurting their kids, what that looks like. I think the really chilling thing that settled into me as I dug deeper into what is working at Tarrant County is just that there's no reason to believe that there's something extraordinary about Tarrant County in that they just have a higher rate of Munchausen by proxy than other places. Right now, the way that this 
issue of Munchausen by proxy is presented in the culture when it's talked about at all is as being an extremely rare thing. None of the experts that I've spoken to throughout the course of this project have told me that they think it's rare. They don't think it's common, but it's not rare. It's likely as prevalent as any other form of child abuse, just something that's interwoven into our communities. We know that right now, the various systems and mechanisms that are meant to catch child abuse are not working. If we were catching it, unfortunately, I think every county would look like Tarrant County. In the next episode, I'm going to talk to three dads who have been through really similar cases, and we are going to delve deeper into what it's like to be the non-offending partner in one of these cases. If you've been listening to this podcast and some of the details sound very familiar to you from your own life or someone that you know, please visit us at munchausensupport.com. We have resources there from some of the top experts in the country, and we can connect you with professionals who can help. If you are curious about this show and the topic of Munchausen by Proxy, follow me on Instagram at Andrea Dunlop. If you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash nobody should believe me. And if monetary support is not an option for you right now, you can also rate and review the podcast on Apple and share on your social media. Word of mouth is so important for podcasts and we really appreciate it. Nobody Should Believe Me is a production of Large Media. Our lead producer is Tina Knoll. The show was edited by Lisa Gray with help from Wendy Nardi. Jeff Gall is our sound engineer. Additional scoring and music by Johnny Nicholson and Joel Schupach. Also special thanks to Maria Paleologos, Joelle Knoll, and Katie Klein for project coordination. I'm your host and executive producer, Andrea Dunlop.